Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. When you got to go to Loomis, Washington, you're a hurting you, right? <laughs> Can you give us a sense of how difficult a shot that would have been? Not very, honestly. I'm looking here and there's a company called Colt. I think there were a lot of people blaming people for how they found themselves in this situation with the U.S. Attorney's Office crawling up their butts. Well, the term he used was sledgehammer. This is episode eight, The Nisha Call. I'm your host, David Payne. There are people out there who know who we killed you. We will never give up our search for the truth. We will never I have no give idea. Up. It could have been a, a vacuum cleaner salesman. I never thought I'd be here. 15 years later. One of the things I want to be very clear about is that I identified as a suspect in my New Yorker story. I did not say that killed Tom Wales. There are many reasons why has not been charged with this murder. And the chief among them, maybe, is because he didn't do it. Before we go any further in this podcast, we want to take a moment to echo Jeffrey Tubin's comments. It is proper to remember, there is a reason why the FBI hasn't closed on their prime suspect. And one of the reasons could be, well, maybe he didn't do it. Something I asked former FBI assistant special agent in charge, David Gomez, about. Is it possible that there is a Richard Jewell scenario here? Yeah, it's that's possible. Let's just quickly summarize the Jewell case. Richard Jewell was a security guard at the Centennial Park bombing site. I don't know whether he rescued people, but he helped herd people out. And a lot of people in the FBI and other agencies thought that his actions were peculiar and so they began to focus on him, and they focused on him to the exclusion of, of other possibilities. Over time, it was determined that he wasn't involved, couldn't have been involved. The force of personality sometimes can cause a, an investigation to look one way to the exclusion of all others. And I, I sincerely believe that that is what was happening on this case at the time that I was in Seattle. Another person who shared that belief and who likened this case to Richard Jules is the pilot's attorney, Larry Setchell. Setchell's been a fierce advocate for the pilot and has repeatedly denied any involvement in the whale's killing on his client's behalf. And taking the sledgehammer body blows thrown at the pilot has made Setchell, well, a little hot himself, according to the local press. We've had a lot of dealings with Larry. He was an angry guy. He was the pilot's lawyer in the uh, wrongful prosecution case. 
Larry was also, you know, in addition to the pilot calling, Larry had called and demanded yeah. uh, correction, retraction, that story, which we, you know, didn't do because there was nothing wrong with the story. They were just angry at the way it was presented. I always have gotten the feeling going through all the files and the documents that the pilot and Setchell kind of fed off each other. I, I think they went them. back in time in other cases or other matters where Setchell had helped him out or represented him. And there was a bond between the two that was pretty strong. And, and, you know, Larry feels very, very strongly that the pilot has been wronged and both the investigators and the media have been unfair. You know, but he's, he's a passionate advocate. Setchell was indeed a passionate advocate for the pilot for years. He declined to speak with us, but his voice carried loud and clear in the dozens of court pleadings he had filed on behalf of the pilot over many years of litigation, including that malicious prosecution case he filed against Wales. So now might be a good time to stop and explore the evidence that underscores Setchell's claims of innocence on his client's behalf. And it seems like a good place to start is with the gun. You see, the FBI had been a little coy in its leaks about what type of Federal Arms replacement barrel they think was used. Federal Arms actually made two types, a standard 9mm barrel and the slightly smaller 380 barrel, which would be better for 380 ammunition. And although it has been reported that the ammunition found was 380 caliber, the FBI has not confirmed that publicly, leaving us with the possibility that the rounds were 9mm instead. Not to get too technical, but these variables matter a lot. For instance, if the bullets recovered were 9x18s, they wouldn't even be able to be fired out of a 380 barrel, something Dry Al had given us a hands-on tutorial on at his shop outside of Tenasket. Let's talk about what you we just did. So you took a gun outside. <clears throat> Tell, explain to me what you were showing us. Well, I took a standard Smith & Wesson bodyguard 380 ACP outside where it was safe, and I showed these folks that a 9mm Makarov cartridge, loaded cartridge, would not chamber in a 380 barrel. And so in order for that to actually chamber, you're saying you would have to use a lathe, make a wider barrel? You'd have to be really a, a technical gunsmith? Yes, I mean, if you were a shade tree gunsmith, you would have to at least get a drill, drill bit big enough to waller the chamber out or use a 9x18 Makarov chamber reamer, which is highly unlikely to make it fit. On the other hand, you can shoot 380 rounds out of the larger 9mm barrel, but because it's not an exact fit, you can run into other issues. Something we experienced ourselves in our test fires with firearm expert Aaron Brudenell. Oh, that one didn't fire. Always a risk when you're firing undersized ammunition. And we could take a look at the cartridge and try to find out why. Let's do that. I think I mentioned earlier, some ammunition will never fire in these things because it goes too far forward. That was one out of the four 380s that didn't fire. Of this brand, yeah. And actually, we today we fired a total between you and me, we fired eight 380s. So... Not that it's a scientific... No, one out of eight. Yeah, one out of eight still pretty pretty significant, though, that yeah. it could happen in a case like that. And we weren't the only ones that had questions about the implications of this gun and ammo combination. So did the FBI. So the witnesses described a succession of rapid-fire shots in this case. 
pop, 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 pop. I guess it's possible that it wouldn't jam. No, yeah, it's possible that the, that the gun had been, it had a replacement barrel. It, it was using odd ammunition. The gun itself could have been customized to a certain extent. We don't know because we don't have access to the weapon. All of those things are possibilities and would have to be considered. But then the alternate possibility has to be considered that perhaps it wasn't a Makarov. Perhaps it was another type of weapon. Why do you say that? Well, because you always need to consider what all other alternatives are possible within this realm of possibilities. 380 bullets, maybe it wasn't a Makarov 9mm, maybe it was some other type of 380 that was very similar to a Makarov. And then you might want to become a scholar on these types of guns and, and determine what else will work with that particular type of round besides a Makarov. We weren't experts in ballistics, to be sure, but we had talked to several. And one of our takeaways from Brudenell was just how imprecise the whole affair was if you didn't have the gun. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's as firm a science as, say, fingerprints and the like. It sounds like there's this window within which these are possible firearms that could have been used. If I were to give you a lab report that said bullet item one was fired in the firearm item two and identified conclusively, then we're done. That's a, that's a solid, rock-solid answer. On the other hand, if I don't have enough to give you that answer, the next best thing is at least saying, here's the list of possible guns. So consider that when you're looking across your evidence. What strikes me about this case is that the FBI has been so certain that this was the exact weapon. And what I hear you saying is there is going to be evidence that this was the type of weapon. But unless you have the gun itself, you can't make that match 100% certain. That's probably a fair assessment. It's still, I mean, again, given the assumption that the bullets and cartridge cases show the signs that you would expect, it's the most reasonable assumption. Maybe the most reasonable assumption. But even the FBI acknowledges now, after 16 years, that you have to consider other possibilities. Whenever you have an analysis and you have something very specific like that, you're relying on the expertise of the examiner, but you have to always recall that there is a possibility, a margin of error, let's say, that needs to be addressed. And there were some other troubling details the FBI would have to address in their case against the pilot. And mostly, it was the lack of evidence that was the most troubling detail of all. Here's Mike Carter and Steve Militesh of The Times again. We know for certain the FBI has searched his home a number of times. We know for certain that they have tapped his phone and listened to him. And what we have is, even after all of that, they don't have a firearm. They don't have any single piece of physical evidence that links him to the crime scene. And they've got an unsolved homicide. As far as we know, and we don't know everything, but best we can tell, he's never come in and provided a statement to the FBI. You can argue that, obviously, it's his legal right. He has every right not to do that, and an attorney probably advised him not to do that. From law enforcement perspective, though, I'm sure from their view, it's like, if you're innocent, why go through all this? According to Militesh and Carter... Investigators and grand juries have not only searched the pilot's houses multiple times, but they have also subpoenaed his work, bank, and phone records. And one of the things they have been looking for are handwriting samples. Now, you might reasonably ask at this point how handwriting samples relate to this fact pattern. 
In 2006, the FBI received a mysterious letter from Las Vegas from someone identifying themselves as Gidget. This Gidget claimed to be the hired hitman in the Wales murder. The 300-word typewritten letter the FBI received was mailed in a handwritten envelope whose block letters revealed an obvious attempt to disguise the author's identity. Here's what the Gidget letter said. Okay, so I was broken between jobs. I got an anonymous call offering money to shoot the guy, so I drove to Seattle to do the job. I did not even know his name. Just got laid off from a job. Nice talking lady. I didn't know her name. She called me, talked to me by name, and asked if I needed some money. I agreed to pursue the matter. Hell, I was going bankrupt. Go to Seattle. Heck, I lived there once. No big deal. Hang out in this guy's backyard. She even gave me the address. Stop off at a place, pick up our gun, and drop it off at a specified location when you are done. Then, you will be directed to where your money is. The wife was out of town. I had no witnesses here. I was curious about who knew me so well. I used cash to pay for all my expenses to avoid an audit trail. No cell phone. I was directed to a place to pick up the gun they wanted me to use and an address. The gun was there. I drove to the address and then parked some distance away, north of downtown. I kind of camped out in the backyard of this house and waited for the guy to settle in at his computer. Once he was there, I took careful aim. I shot two or possibly more times and watched him collapse. I absurdly waited a few minutes and then left. I was sure he was dead. Retracing my steps, I dropped off the gun, found my money, and returned to Vegas. I feel bad about it, but I needed the money, and there were no witnesses. I really don't know who fronted the money, but the money was there, and I sure needed it. What did you guys make of the Gidget letter? <laughs> you just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about that. Another bizarre twist in this case. I mean, Somebody. it came out of nowhere. And it, I've heard it theorized that the FBI could have actually written the letter or, or concocted the letter to people have made that allegation. But I believe that would be a great risk for them to do something like that. I thought it highly doubtful that the FBI would concoct a letter to somehow smoke out the killer. But I wanted to know what Agent Gomez would tell us about this letter. So another public thing that was released was the Gidget letter. I do recall that the investigative team did not believe the letter. They thought that perhaps their primary suspect had manufactured that letter himself as a means to provide himself with an alibi or a, an alternate theory as to how the uh, homicide occurred. The next question is, who has interest in, in diverting attention from themselves to some other possible suspect? Now, a whole new set of leads that have to be covered because of a particular letter in Las Vegas. Well, what was pointed out was that the pilot, who was the primary suspect, had deadheaded in Las Vegas and had been in a position to mail the letter. Correct. I, and I do recall that. Okay. So either the letter was legitimate, meaning it came from the pilot as an attempt to mislead the investigators, or it was a nut job prankster. But it seems to be that the FBI believe it to be the former because of the reports later about linking 
and releasing that information that the pilot had been in Las Vegas. Right, but I can also see an alternative that it would also be in the pilot's interest to fabricate a letter like that because he, he felt that he was being unfairly prosecuted or unfairly looked at even though he had no involvement. Did they ever share the letter itself? I know they shared the envelope, but did they, they, sh- they shared the they envelope shared the and part of the le- part of the text. But did you ever see the no. letter or anything like that? No. no. So we, you know, we don't know. I mean, but there's no question that a letter came from, with a post stamp from Las Vegas, and there's no question that he was on a flight to Las Vegas, confirmed by another airline that that he used to to get there. So there's no doubt that. There's a nexus there. What do the feds think about that letter? What's their working theory? Well, their experts told us on the record that they figured it was somebody who was trying to create a diversion, who had some connection to the case, given the uh, some of the wording and personal aspects of the letter. To be honest, it all feels a little speculative to me, this Gidget letter. And if they weren't the authors... I suspect the FBI's experts really don't know what to do with this clue. In the ledger we were keeping, I felt like this pointed away from the pilot, even though he had been in Las Vegas three days before the letter was sent from a mailbox there. We have a handwriting analysis from the prime suspect, and we have some handwriting evidence in this case in the form of the Gidget letter. So my assumption has to be that there's not a match of the two things. Well, again, if you can conclusively say that there's no match, then that tends to eliminate that person as a suspect. However, if the analysis by the handwriting experts is that it's possible but without certainty, then that remains, that particular aspect remains in play from a profile standpoint. Fair enough. And as long as we were keeping track of things that were still in play and which fell on both sides of the ledger, The whole saga of the Bellevue gun dealer, Albert Lee Kwan, had to make you at least re-examine the FBI's theory that Kwan had sold the replacement barrel to the pilot. Does it change your point of view as a case agent if after 23 days the guy doesn't break? Yeah, I think that would, you know, it, it colors your point of view. And one of the things that I used to talk about as a profiler was that you need to maintain an objectivity in looking at the case. And so... Over time, I think that that thought process, that group think, came to overwhelm the, the investigators in this particular case, caused them to focus unnecessarily on one particular aspect of the case. It does seem, based on the leaks, that there doesn't seem to be a lot of alternative theory exploration. Yeah, I would agree with that, that looking at it from the outside, looking in. I think that a determination was made a long time ago that this one individual was the perpetrator of the crime, and all we had to do was prove it or get him to confess. And it was proving increasingly difficult to prove it, so then the concept became, let's see if we can get him to somehow confess to the crime. Right. So that that's the Mr. Big scenario. Exactly. Mr. Big. And not that Mr. Big. A Mr. Big sting operation. And of all the things we had learned in our investigation... This one might top them all in terms of both its audacity and its jeopardy in delivering an indictment. After your story was reported, I wonder if you heard anything back from the FBI 
about anything that was generated as a result of that story? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I hope you did. Well, we did. Apparently, the pressure and the heat that you put on that case inspired some further investigative zeal out of the prosecutor. You mean Clymer? Out of Clymer. Oh, okay. And out of the FBI. The FBI began a year-long undercover investigation to try to get a confession out of Huh. And that undercover investigation took the form of a technique that's called Mr. Big. Are you wow. familiar with this? This is all a mystery. This is all news to me. Both, both the fact that this investigation took place and whatever Mr. Big is. So there's I've been a lawyer for a long time, and this Mr. Big scenario was a mystery to me as well. I never heard of it before this case, and I asked Agent Gomez what he could tell us about it. Can you describe the Mr. Big tactic that is used in interrogations generally? Well, it's not a tactic that I had used before, and it was not a tactic that I ever recall being recommended. The concept was that you take an agent and have him represent a major organized crime figure, someone, Mr. Big, someone who has a lot of power and influence, and then you somehow get that person introduced in an undercover capacity to your, your primary suspect with the idea that you're going to offer the suspect the opportunity to make a lot of money or to be involved in something that would be, besides being lucrative, that might be enhancing to his profession, whatever. I find it a bit far-fetched as a scenario. It was successful, obviously, for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and certainly has the possibility of being successful in other scenarios, but you always want to... And as I explained the Mr. Big scenario to Jeffrey Tubin, I was at least somewhat comforted that I wasn't the only one out of the loop. This was something he had never heard of either. It's a technique that's been used in Canada and developed by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Okay. Please, I'm all ears. Right. And the play works something like this. You start a friendship with the suspect. And through that friendship with the person, you start asking them to do things for you that might be mildly criminal or not. Here, you know, I'll give you a thousand bucks if you watch my car while I run in and have to make these payments and so forth. And you hint at... Through the use of an undercover officer? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so... Through that process, you hint at the fact that there's a larger criminal enterprise, and would you, Mr. Suspect, like to be involved in that? The whole setup revolves around this fact that at some point, you want to get the suspect to want to be part of this organized crime organization. But in order to become part of the organization, you've got to meet with the head of the criminal enterprise, a.k.a. Mr. Big. Who is different from the undercover original officer? Yeah. Who is different than the undercover officer because he's the now the head of the criminal enterprise. Mr. Big goes through a series of questions with you which are designed to determine and create trust between the parties. So you know all this terrible stuff about us is what Mr. Big will say. We need to know terrible stuff about you. And that's the format through which you try to elicit a murder confession. Wow. Okay. And, and did this actually go forward with Yes. And they actually introduced an undercover, and did he actually meet with Mr. Big? Yes. Wow. And did he confess? No. No. Maybe because he didn't do it. I, I mean, again, I, 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 I mean, the whole thing sounds kind of bizarre to me. I don't know if that works or not. 
And because you know the rest of the story, that there has been no arrest of the FBI's prime suspect, the one who's been the subject of this technique, it is safe to say it didn't quite work out. In fact, this high-risk, high-reward effort, which was no doubt well-intentioned, and which was almost certainly fueled by Tubin's criticism in 2007, backfired in spectacular fashion. Do you consider it a Hail Mary kind of tactic? I do agree. It was somewhat of a Hail Mary approach to this thing. It was like, this is our last big chance to get this guy. So in our investigation of this, the Mr. Big scenario also involved the taking of a polygraph, which I can't really picture how that would come about. Yeah, I I don't recall exactly either. I believe that that was something that was proposed by Mr. Big in order for him to have complete trust and confidence in the suspect's ability to carry out whatever plan that they have that was going to... Right off the bat, it strikes me as problematic because what happens if they pass the polygraph? Where are you left now? And, And this seems ridiculous because if he passes, what kind of case is the prosecutor left with? I think think that that's exactly what happened. And it was a... How do you recover from that? Right. And I think that they... And I, you know, I have to be honest, I don't recall whether he actually passed the polygraph or was just inconclusive. But either way, passing it is worse than being inconclusive. But inconclusive is certainly something that would have to be revealed to the defense attorneys under the Brady rule. And now he has a plausible defense that has to be brought up and cannot be denied by the prosecution and certainly makes it difficult to take a case to trial. And this is the point in the podcast. I can feel all the lawyers listening collectively raise their hands to ask, What were they thinking? You can't even admit the results of a polygraph test in a criminal trial against a suspect. Yeah, how would you ever even get the results of the polygraph in? Or do you say it's a fake polygraph? Well, the prosecutor can't get it in, but he has to reveal the fact that they knew about this polygraph and that he passed it. So now the defense is going to... No, I, I, that's what I'm saying. Even even under the best-case scenario where he confesses, how do you get that in? Yeah, I see what your point you because it's, it's inadmissible on its face as a polygraph. I think the idea was that it would allow them, it would reinvigorate the investigation because it would say, aha, see, uh, we were right all along. I specifically had this conversation with several attorneys in the office and the consensus was pretty much like, what in the heck were they thinking, you know? Right. How does something like that happen? Is it the case agents or just managing the case? Or don't they have to run that up the chain where somebody would say, that's just really a bad idea, guys? You know what? It has to be sanctioned by the prosecutor. And in this case, the prosecutor is working out of Washington, D.C. Is this Clymer? Yes. And uh, Mr. Clymer had to have approved this. So ultimate blame kind of rests with him, not with the investigator. The invest, you know, as an investigator, you might throw out a lot of ridiculous ideas, but I think that the ending of the, this undercover operation of let's give him a polygraph and see if he confesses on tape is, I'm at a loss for words to say just how ludicrous I actually think the scenario was. My 
My name is Lisa Kern Griffin. I'm a professor of law at Duke University School of Law, where I've taught. This whole Mr. Big scenario did seem ludicrous to me as well. So we decided to check with a real expert, constitutional law professor Lisa Griffin. I do remember. I remember the news coming out that an assistant United States attorney in Seattle had been shot through his window while he was working in the evening. And it was certainly something that AUSAs discussed. It, um, Griffin remembers the murder when it happened. But like most people, she has lost track of it over time. I ask her what she knows about the Mr. Big technique. I'm not familiar with using it, but I understand what it is. And why are you not familiar with using it? It's, depending on the circumstances, it's widely regarded as a due process violation. As a matter of supervising investigations as an AUSA, I never encountered a scenario that even remotely approximated a situation like that. Are you aware of any cases in the United States where the technique has been used and any confessions obtained have been admissible? So, you know, when the target of an investigation is approached like that, there are actually three potential constitutional violations depending on the situation. The Fifth Amendment in general prohibits compelled testimonial self-incrimination. There's also a due process violation, which is a Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment violation. And in many cases, there's a third possibility, which is a Sixth Amendment violation. Yeah, you beat me to my question. This particular interrogation happened after the government knew he was represented by counsel. I have no direct expertise of the investigation into Tom Whale's murder, and there are Sixth Amendment protections that pertain when someone is represented by counsel if there have been any underlying charges. So once that happens... As the potential barriers to admitting any of the results of a Mr. Big Sting were adding up, I had to remind myself just where investigators were at the point they decided to take this gamble, something Tubin empathized with them about. One of the striking things for me is this whole polygraph issue, because if it doesn't work, you've created a huge problem for your case. Yeah, that's true. But I think the context matters here. By the time I wrote this story, it was six years after the murder, and now we're 16 years after the murder. I think even then it was time for a Hail Mary. It was time to just take any chance you could. And if it created legal problems down the road, well, you'll deal with legal problems down the road. I don't begrudge the prosecutors and the FBI for doing something unconventional in 2007, 2008. It was desperation time. And I'm glad that they were taking some chances because not taking chances had gotten them nowhere. The FBI was leaving no stones unturned in their 2008 efforts to get their suspect. But their biggest problem might have arisen much earlier, the night of the crime. Investigators have been notoriously squishy on the timeline of the murder, and there's a reason for that. Any avid podcast listener knows about the Nisha call in Serial. But now we come to the big one, the one nobody can shrug off. This is the one I think of as the smoking gun call. It's the Nisha call. No way around it. The Nisha call is a big, fat problem for Adnan. In our case, we had the opposite of the Nisha call, a potentially exculpatory phone call, and one that was a big, fat problem for the prosecution. 
We had an unexplained call from the home of the FBI's prime suspect at or near the exact time of the killing. According to an article written by Militesh and Carter dated October 6, 2002, a friend of the pilot says a phone call was made from the pilot's Bellevue home at about 10.30 p.m. While the friend didn't provide details about the call, if this was true, it would have been impossible for the pilot to have shot Wales at 10.40 p.m., since his home is about 25 minutes from the crime scene. Let's talk about that phone call, because that does seem to be the key... Uh, sticking point. A real key sticking point. You guys, quote, federal sources told you there was a phone call at that time. Correct. There's also been reporting that says friends of the pilot say there was a phone call at that time. But you guys were able to at least get somebody in law enforcement to corroborate there was a phone call at around 1030 or 1040. I'd have to look at our sourcing on that to be really careful. I just can't remember exactly who told us what. There's only so many places information has come from in this story. Right. And, you know, one of the things that Steve and I have done religiously for the last 12 years is every year there's a search warrant that's still sealed in Superior Court. And every year we ask for the judge to unseal it. Every year he doesn't. But there is one unsealed search warrant. And as Steve puts it, we reported that there was a phone call made. What time was the phone call? Oh, you know, I, I, it was sometime around 1030 yeah, ish, ish, ish. Yeah. But the question was, you know, was the call at 1030 or was the call at 1050? Well, I was just going to say, the, the thing that you, when you asked us about what law enforcement has told us, the truth is they have been extremely vague about those very questions. Exactly. We've tried to pin them down exactly what time, you know, and to who and how long. And they, that's the one thing that they have really stayed away from. I guess the closest you say is that they kind of acknowledge it by the way that they that response but they've never come out and given us any kind of detailed account of it so it's combined with what other people have told us who are non-law enforcement and their reaction you know there's no doubt in our minds it was a problem but it was kind of the touchy thing that law enforcement didn't want to get into it was touchy because it was obviously a problem as best we can tell the murder occurred at 10:40 p.m when neighbors reported shots heard. This call from the pilot's house was in this squishy 10.30 time frame, and Wales lived nowhere near the pilot. I think the thing that stopped us at one point and gave us pause within the first year is, you know, we heard this claim that he had made a phone call from his house at the time of the crime. And, you know, that's a pretty significant alibi, and you have to give it credence, and nobody could explain it, you know, how he could be two places at one time, except I think later on there was some talk about the fact that if everything worked driving-wise from Tom Whale's house, hitting the lights right, light traffic, maybe you could pull it off. You know, one of the things that they've done is they've gone back and they've pulled all the traffic camera video over the bridge because you have to drive over a bridge to get from where Tom Wales lived to where the pilot lives. Especially if you're going at a quick pace. No, you could go up and around the lake, but you couldn't drive fast enough to get from Queen Anne Hill to Bow Arts taking 405. It won't work. So he had to either go over 520 or the I-90 bridge. And they've looked at the video. They've seen nothing that leads them to believe that they've seen his vehicle God knows how many times they've driven it or we've looked at that it. and redriven it and redriven it and, and we've driven it. You've driven it too. Oh, yeah, so we, and could you make it? I think we 
driven over to Bo Arts. I had, I don't know, half a dozen times maybe in this story. And we, uh, we know the, the potential it, routes up and down. Route. And there's so many variables that go into it. It's not going to give 1030 you. 10.30 at night, eh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. But you're going to speed. <laughs> we, we, we tried. We did. Yeah. 10.30 at night, same night of the week. How long did it take us? Too 40 long. minutes. Yeah. No, 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 no. It was faster no, than you it thought. Faster it was faster when you Faster than we thought, but still not fast enough. Given the FBI's touchiness on the timeline, it was unclear if the phone call was made before or after the murder. Either way, we wanted to see just how tight the window was. Which way am I going? Five south. So you're going to go five south to 90 east. Wait, how long is it taking to get to the freeway? We are six minutes. The map is showing another 16 minutes to Beaux Arts. Should I just blow this light? No. Because if I tell you yes and you get a ticket... If I'm in a hurry to get home and establish an alibi, I would probably blow this light. Do it. You have reached your destination. So how long did that take us? 19 minutes. 19 minutes from Hayes Street to Beauarts. From our point of view... If there was a phone call within 10 minutes of the murder, someone else had to be involved, either doing the shooting or making the alibi call. And to that point, what was the pilot's alibi? This is what he told Bruce McClung. After the murder, Steve told me he was with at a movie in Seattle at the time of the murder. He said he met her at the movie and they were together the rest of the evening. But his lawyer, Larry Setchell, told the Seattle Post-Intelligencer in 2006 that after the movie, which ended at about nine, the two split up and went their separate ways. Setchell further added, just like any other human being, the pilot can't account for all of his time that night. So which one was it? He was home with the woman, or he was home alone making calls? Or I suppose, was the woman in the house making calls? Or were they both at home making calls while the hitman did it? And was she the mysterious woman in the Gidget letter? It was all a mystery. And when I asked Agent Ron Bone about it that fall afternoon, he only made it deeper. David, tell me what Bone said about the alibi and... So I asked Bone about the alibi witness that had that night. He said that it was someone that he had been dating. Apparently he was dating several people. And... When I asked him specifically about the phone calls from the house, he said there was more to that situation than has been reported. In other words, there was more evidence that bolstered the alibi that had that night. Let's take the flip side of my question. Lay out the case that the pilot didn't do it. It's the the same case. Well, the phone call, tunnel vision, by the FBI? I mean, that, that would be an argument. Traveling distance, how difficult it is to get from point A to point B. It's, it, you couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. You mentioned before, no, you know, no records recovered that we know of. Financial records, no DNA match, clearly, or we would have an arrest. If you're going to hire a hitman, you got to pay him, right? Or some sort of compensation, at least theoretically. I don't... It would be hard. Multiple searches of houses. It would be hard to hide evidence at the point, the the sort of scrutiny that 
this man's been under for these years. You know, you want to talk fine-tooth comb, it goes beyond even that. I mean, the FBI has been, they've got a murdered federal prosecutor. They've got four or five full-time investigative agents. They've got separate funding for the investigation. This investigation lives for as long as DOJ determines it does. For whatever questions are about about his other actions in life, it's a big leap to, to kill somebody. No indication, except for the Caratu matter. And there it was, the Caratu matter. For months, we had been noticing this pattern whenever we spoke with anyone who had deep knowledge about the case. When confronting the hard problems like the phone call, the FBI would revert to what is known as bad character evidence about the pilot. And the Caratu matter was ripe with it. Because the Caratu matter would also result in yet another dead body. Next week on Somebody Somewhere. These guys reminded me a lot of folks who were in the junk car business. They just told me you didn't see nothing, you don't know nothing. You gotta understand, the whole reason for renting out property was to raise enough money to keep the lawn mowed. Plummeted straight down into the ground, and then shortly thereafter, some smoke where it had impacted the ground. Ken had his guns, and they had theirs, and then I had one too. It almost came down to a, a shootout. Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Every week, they're bringing their A-game, and we couldn't have done it without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. Democracy is written and performed by Dysfunction, and original score and voiceover work is provided by Hallie Payne. Social media videos and artwork provided by Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening.